This is Pivot Perspectives with Chris O'Byrne, the show that takes you around the world to share interviews with some of the most successful and relevant people on the planet. Hear their stories and get the most important business lessons they've learned on their road to success and get exclusive access on how to implement their success into your life and business. Pivot Perspectives is brought to you by the Strategic Advisor Board and your host, Chris O'Byrne. All right. Well, let's start then with... uh going back a couple of years to your childhood. Can you share a story from your childhood that you feel was instrumental in developing you into the person you are today? You know, I, I've, I've thought about that uh, for quite some time. And it's interesting. What comes to my mind is, uh, I think I was probably 13, 14 years old. And uh, it was, uh, I was Boy Scouts. I think it was whatever the one just below uh, Eagle, because I did eventually get my Eagle, but the one just below it. And our Boy Scout troop did an annual chicken survival weekend. <clears throat> and I'll always remember that because we, you, you would never, people would never do this nowadays, taking 13 year old boys, pairing them up, dropping them off at point A. And tell them we'll see you Sunday morning on Friday night, just before dark. Drop us off at point A with a live chicken, a peach can full of our survival gear, no food allowed. And I think we I think we each carried a sleeping bag, I think if I remember right. And we had to get from point A, that wasn't a map, mapping compass, of course. We had to get from point A to point B. And a pancake breakfast was waiting for us Sunday morning at point B. And that was like phenomenal to think about that kind of independence, that kind of decision-making, that kind of, of trust. And, you know, not like they didn't, they just grabbed us off the street and dropped us. Right. But, but there was, you know, there was training we did survival camp outs before we learned how to build shelters, all those sort of things land navigation, all that stuff. But 13-year-old boys being dropped off with a live chicken and walking, and it wasn't that far. I mean, I don't remember how far it was anymore. Darn, dad Dad just left. I could have asked him. He probably, he might remember. Uh, but, you know, going, literally going from A to B, un completely unsupervised, some matches and what's in our head and a live chicken to eat whenever we decided to. So that, that shaped a yeah. lot of who I am, how I do things. Uh, the fact that I'm a, I love going out into the woods by myself. I love those moments. Uh, you know, there was, there was a similar event in the special forces qualification course. Uh, dang it! I just—it was in the Uwari Force. Now I can't think of the name of the exercise. It was a very similar thing. They drop us off at point A, and you got to get to point B, and then at point B you get you get information about point C, and you don't know how many points you have. You also don't know how long you have. You also had cadre looking for you to find you, and if they found you, they took you back to your last point. And I loved that thing i love that exercise and i think it comes from chicken survival and as a kid and just 
doing that. Uh, my first one, my first partner was Peter Lang and because I did it twice. And it was just what an amazing experience to allow teenagers to do and just good luck. Good luck, kids. Oh, my goodness. So yeah. how long did the chicken last? Uh, I think we cooked it Saturday afternoon. Oh, okay. It made it a day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we put it in a, we, we hoboed it. We put it in a pillowcase and then got a stick because I don't remember why. I think, I think that was one of the things they told us we could have a pillowcase, put the chicken in. And then, you know, hoboed it, put it on the end of a stick and carried it over our shoulder, walking through the woods with a, with a chicken and a pillowcase. And hang it, <laughs> I love that. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. yeah. What an awesome experience. Yeah. That was unreal. Unreal experience to just have that kind of uh, independence. And yeah. It was all on us. Right. Yeah. So did you go into the military right after high school? Kind of. So I went to Texas A&M with the desire to join the military. So I went through ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps, uh, something, Reserve Officer Training, something. Corps, yeah. Corps, yeah. Uh, so I was at the Corps at A&M. But I also enlisted in the Texas National Guard while I was at AM because I had some upperclassmen that were doing it. And they said that I, w- I was an easy sell. They, they gave me the two, two things. Give me $120 of beer money a month. And I got to learn what it was going to be like, what it would be like to be a soldier before I became an officer. And really, to me, that was actually more important because I wanted to understand what it was, yeah. what life was like for my future soldiers. And when I became an officer, what they had gone through. So basic training, all the, you know, all the, the nothing on your collar, private stuff. Uh, yeah. It was just a blast. Uh, great experience. I was a, uh, I was a tank driver. My tank was five years older than me. Uh, so yeah, nice. uh, that was pretty awesome. And then I changed units about halfway through. So I did 18 months as a tank tank driver, and then I changed to a special ops unit. Special ops and wasn't it wasn't a Green Beret unit. We were the uh, long range reconnaissance surveillance detachment for the division. So there was 30 of us that did like special ops reconnaissance stuff, the deep fight. So I did that the, the last year plus of uh, my time as enlisted before I received my commission. Gotcha. So then, uh, well, yeah, tell me kind of like what happened next and kind of walk me through your military career and any stories or things that you can share about that time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, let's see. The, 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 no real, well, there's a little bit of a lesson when I was a, when I was a a Lurse D guy, the long range guy. I always remember one training event. So we were in Austin and we would always train at Fort Hood and we, we would partner with a, a Huey helicopter company, uh, another national guard unit. And they would fly us in and infill us for the mission on Friday nights. Uh, it's kind of like a chicken survival, go in Friday night yeah. and come out Sunday. Uh, 
but I remember coming out uh, Sunday morning on one of the missions, and there's you see these signs because we're just we're we're getting doing the exercise road march stuff now, but you see these signs off in the distance on the road that are facing the other way. <laughs> they're like, what is that? What is that? We finally get up to the sign and uh, look at it, and it says danger impact area, do not enter, and all that. <laughs> so. We, we have been inserted into the wrong uh, landing zone is what happened there. Uh, fortunately, nothing bad happened, but it was just one of those, oops. Uh, <laughs> you know, and so I got commissioned as a engineer, uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and my first duty station was Fort Wainwright, Alaska, uh, which is right outside of Fairbanks, Alaska, so way up there. Uh, yeah, very cold and very dark in the winter time, and never the sun doesn't seem to set, even though it technically does in the summertime. Um, you know, some great lessons there from from dealing with the environment of you know extreme cold survival, going into full on survival mode because uh, the exercise. It's so cold that everybody else has gone back in, but we were already out. So we had to stay out, uh, go into survival mode a couple of times. And, you know, you, you, you build a bond uh, with the guys sitting around. Uh, there was never any, when I say survivor mode, survival mode, it wasn't like we were in fear of death you know, rationing or anything like that. We, we never got to that point. It was just, all right, well, we'll sit here until somebody comes and gets us sort of thing. Uh, yeah. But the bond that you have with those guys is, I mean, even to this day, I'm still connected with, there's a group of us on Facebook that still chat and get together. And uh, when you think back to that, it was that the common, common situation put us into that, that sense of brotherhood, you know, uh, we could talk more about, about what it's, you know, on the combat side of it, but that right there is the same thing. It's this commonality, common experience that you, that you feel. And I found that the more extreme the experience, the closer the relationship. It's a very interesting thing, and I'm sure there's some psychologists that have done some studies on this, but it's a human nature thing of if we've gone through an experience together, you know, I mean, even even you and I just talking about, you know, can't wait to meet you in person. We'll have a common experience together through that Buffalo leadership thing, and that will bring us closer. Or it might put us apart. I don't know. You know, <laughs> in person. Uh, but that that that's what happens. There's this common human experience that that, uh, and I've talked about this in a number of other uh, venues. Is we'll never get beyond that. The ARs, the VRs, the Zooms, all these things will never replace the dude sitting next to me because oh by the way guys relate side to side women relate face to face uh so i should turn sideways with you here uh so uh but it, it is that that bond will never go away uh 
And if it does, we've lost, we've lost touch with society and we'll never have the society that we've built spend all this time. I'm not just talking about, um, you know, the great U S of a, I'm talking about the human, the human tribe and the human society of that. So, uh, that's, that's a little bit of philosophical dive in from the Arctic of Alaska. Uh, while there, I, I volunteered for SF, uh, spent the rest of my career as a green beret. Uh, I got to do some, some really cool things as a green beret, uh, and go to, you know, a couple of crap places, uh, probably the, you know, I, I got the, I don't talk about this a lot, but uh, I probably should. I received the Medal for Bravery uh, from the Polish Army for actions in Haiti. So when I was in Haiti, I took my team to Haiti. Uh, we were a coalition support team for the Polish Special Forces, and they're called GROM, G-R-O-M, which is an acronym, but it also means lightning in Polish. Uh, and while we were there, there was, there was a riot. Uh, and I rescued a, a Haitian man from getting lynched. And the Colonel thought, uh, who was a, who was a good friend of mine. Uh, we had developed a long relationship. Uh, unfortunately he had some demons that he, uh, that took over for him about uh, eight, nine years ago. Uh, so Colonel uh, Swabamir Pedaliski is no longer with us, but he, he was the, the, uh, not the Marchinko, kind of a Marchinko, Dick Marchinko guy, but, uh, oh man, I can't think of the Delta Force founder. He was more the Delta Force founder um, than he was the Mark Rich or Dick Marchinko guy. Uh, so he, so he, he felt what my actions were important enough to receive this medal, uh, from the Polish minister, Polish minister of defense, uh, for bravery. And one other guy on my team got, got one also for a similar situation that happened a little bit later in our deployment, uh, where he rescued a Haitian, uh, and, for point of reference, they had also re awarded these uh, two medals to uh, uh, Master Sergeant Shugart, boy, my name, and uh, Shugart and uh, Gordon uh, for what happened in Somalia because they had they had done some training with the Grom uh, before. So uh, that was that was an amazing uh, deployment one of the very uh shaping for me and understanding building relationships here's a uh their highest level uh unit counterterrorism unit that i have to take care of me and my team have to take care of uh and dealing with their culture and what they force how they saw themselves and then how my American headquarters looked at them and said, oh, just a bunch of Polacks. We don't need them. Put them on gate guard, you know, and, and how we were able to sell them uh, to where they actually provided the personal security detail for Secretary Les Aspen and 
for the then commander of uh, U.S. SOCOM, um, General Downing. I had to think of his nickname first. <laughs> for for I mean, because I pushed that, we sold that to the command, and then Colonel Pedalewski and his team demonstrated it, and they became the PSD for all dignitaries coming into country when we were there, uh, which is a high level of trust when you think about that. Yeah. So yeah. tell me a little more about the the potential lynching. Kind of how did that come about and how did you prevent that? Uh, it wasn't a whole lot more than driving down the road on a normal patrol and seeing a mob going, stopping. All right, what's going on here? And in my non-existent French and uh, their broken English, some of the outskirts people told me and pushed our way through the crowd because yeah, I had a, one of the Polish guys with me, pushed our way through the crowd and stopped it, got the guy, put him in our truck and drove him, drove him to the other side of town. So, uh, you know, I mean, truthfully, in the personal opinion side, it was a diplomatic, diplomatic ploy, ploy by Colonel Pelleski. Also, I mean, it was it was did it take some bravery when I look back on it? Yeah, yeah. But were those people going to do anything to me? No, you know, because I'm gotcha. Not, and, and back then, <clears throat> so the image of the of the milit the U.S. military, special particularly special ops. I think that's a good thing to understand. When we see them now, the boys are all kitted up, right? I mean, head to head to toe. You know, they got the knives, the helmet, the vest, the you know, all all the stuff. When we were going out in Haiti and Bosnia and Kosovo, we were wearing BDUs and carried our nine mil, the brown, not the brownie, uh, Beretta, Beretta nine millimeter M9, in a concealed position underneath our BDU shirt. That was the only weapon. We were not kitted up because we were we didn't want to present a, a threatening appearance because we were trying to be part of the community and help the community. So yes, we were armed, but it was nothing like the fellows you see them now. You know, pictures from Iraq and Afghanistan. Those fellows kitted out to the nines. Yeah, uh, we were slick. I mean. Can of Copenhagen, nine millimeter pistol, and sometimes if I figured out how to carry an extra mag, an extra mag, uh, soft cap, ball cap, and yep. that was it. You know, we didn't even have, you know, the we were using you know handheld walkie talkies at the time, and so we didn't even have the emergency comm stuff. Most of the time, we'd leave those walkie talkies in the truck because you know walking around with that, you know, another thing underneath your shirt to show that you're not carrying anything underneath your shirt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then how long were you in and what rank did you leave at? So I was in uh, 25 years and uh, I retired as a Lieutenant Colonel. Oh, uh, five is yeah. the, you know, kind of the great, the pay grade they refer to it as, uh, you know, 
uh, sometimes I like to say, you know, from tank driver to Green Beret Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, so, you know, I mean, because that's, that's what it was, you know. Yeah. Five, yeah nothing so. tank driver with, you know, nothing on my collar at all to, you know, Lieutenant Colonel and, man, being able to wield some wield some uh, power and destruction if I wanted to type of thing. So Yeah, that's yeah. quite the trajectory. Yeah, it is. It is. It took a while. Uh, but quite the experience that has led me uh, to have, to understand, I mean, the, the lessons that I, I learned throughout, uh, just phenomenal. And they're, they're what shapes everything I do now uh, from how I interact with people just on a personal basis to uh, the, the pro coaching programs I've, I've created and run to, uh, you know, where I, where I give back and that's giving back to my veteran tribe. Yeah. I, I look at my time, those 25 years have given me the foundation for everything from day one, really from day one of enlisting, raising my, raising my hand <clears throat> to enlist uh, all the way through of giving me the foundation of, all my leadership, understanding, all my problem solving, uh, problem identification, planning, crisis, chaos, you know, how to handle it. I mean, there, there's so much that I gained through that, that I, that I literally had taken it and converted it into uh, the business world. You know, I even, another story I haven't shared a whole, with a whole lot of people is, one of the things I did right after I retired from the army was fairly Dickinson university hired me as a professor, uh, to teach a class called planning and program development. And that class, they, they literally just sent me a book. I thought I could see it behind me. Just sent me a book. This is like this thick. And here's the, you know, here's your, here's your club, your book for the course. And I'm like, is there no program of instruction or, lessons or nope here's the book so i read the book and then i took all my knowledge of military planning process the military decision making process the how we identify things all those things and i turned it into a business process and that was what i taught uh for planning and program development i did it taught it for about two years through them now, is that what got you on the path to where you're at now with Tribe and Purpose? Uh, I mean, I think it was a it was a shape of it. Uh, I didn't get on the path to Tribe and Purpose until I had hit a point. Uh, you know, the way I like to put it is, I wandered the job desert for seven years after retiring. You know. Five different companies, plus a consulting company that I was running in between those companies. And every one of them were great companies, but I hated every one of them at the time because I didn't understand who I was and what I was supposed to be doing. So it was a summer afternoon, right about this time, matter of fact, late, late June. Uh, I just finished my seventh year of coaching boys high school rugby. And I was sitting here feeling sorry for myself, wondering what's wrong with me. Why do I, 
why can't I find that job that all everybody else seems to have that really cool job? Why can't I? But you know, I, I was blaming myself the whole time. And I had a moment of, of clarity as I started to reflect on my life since leaving the army. Looking back, I realized that only two things have been consistent in my life. Number one, family. Uh, fortunate enough to, you know, now 37 years married. Wait, 36 years. 36 years married my still brand new, beautiful Texas bride that survived Alaska uh, and all the deployments. Still married to her. So that was consistency number one. And consistency number two caught me off guard. And that was boys high school rugby. Because uh, right after I retired, my youngest son decided he wanted to play rugby. And I went from picking him up after practice. My wife would grab him at school, drop him off at practice, and I'd swing by the practice field, pick him up. Started leaving the office earlier. Started getting out of the truck. Next thing I know, the, the head coach and I become good friends. He says, well, why don't you become an assistant coach? And I said, because I don't know anything about the game. Uh, so I became, a, I became a student of the game. Uh, the next season, he asked me to take over as head coach. Oh, and I ran that club for the next six years until, I mean, until I truthfully got burned out. Uh, and what happened that when I was having that moment of clarity and why was I spending, you know, 40 hours volunteering for something that a sport that I had never played that now all of a sudden I'm super passionate about. I was passionate about the boys. And that's what I realized. The sport was great. The boys were great but it was being their coach. That third piece was what I was, that's what was fueling me. It was uh, coaching, mentoring, guiding, teaching those young men to not just be great rugby players, but great young men when they graduated high school and into the community, into our communities. And so I took that bit of information and I took it to a couple of friends in my inner circle and my network and talked to them about it. Cause I'd heard of life coaching and I was like, I ain't, uh, only life coaches I knew with Tony Robbins and then the guys you meet at networking events that are close talkers and got the, got the weak cold hand, you know, dead fish handshake guys. Oh yeah. That ain't me. I ain't a touchy feely guy. <laughs> and they told me about executive coaching and business coaching. And so that, that's what I, I started to do the research, found some guys that, that were at the second and third levels of my network that were successful in, those, in that realm, bought them some cups of coffee, learned how they became coaches, and then uh, learned how they ran their business. And that's that's when I shifted to kicking off, taking my what was my uh, consulting business, LTO Enterprises. It's a very powerful name in the business world, right? Enterprises, LTO. You know what LTO stands for? Oh, Kids boy. made it up. Kids made it up when Facebook first became a thing. Listen to Otis. Uh, <laughs> I told people it stood for leadership training and operations. Uh, <laughs> so I took LTO Enterprises and I flipped it into Tribe and Purpose because I realized that that's what that's who I am. That's what's important to me is is establishing, knowing who my tribe is, giving back, and taking care of my tribe, and doing it with purpose and intention. Because your purpose, understanding, having clarity in your purpose is what fuels you. It's what gets you up every morning. If you know why you're doing it, it's, it's the gasoline in the engine. It's the diesel in that F-250 you're driving down the road. 
it's that sort of thing. That's what your purpose is. It's because, you know, to, to continue down the purpose role, it's your purpose is never fulfilled. Achieved. I'm sorry, I messed up, messed up the punchline. Your purpose isn't achieved like a goal or, or a vision. Your purpose is fulfilled, but it's fulfilled in a cup that's never full. You know, it, it is, it's not the cup runs over. The cup always has more space. And that, that's what, that's what your purpose is. Cause it's the thing that every morning when you have clarity in your purpose, you're like, yep, that's why I'm doing this. I don't feel like it, but yep, now I'm doing it. And you know that by doing your actions throughout your day, intentionally taking those actions with your purpose in mind, you are going forward with what you want to achieve and achieve your success. I, I summarize it as live your life with intention in pursuit of your purpose to achieve your success. That man, you think about living that way and I'm, I'm striving for it every day, striving for that every day. Love it. Love it. That's awesome. Now looking back over your life, who have been some of the key uh, influences or mentors? Uh, well, we can throw it back all the way back to Boy Scouts. You know, dad, dad was a scout master. My, uh, my second dad, Ronnie Godfrey, is a scout master. They, they, they showed us so much from storytelling to living in the woods. Uh, so, and leading and, and leading also. Uh, I had a couple of upperclassmen at Texas A&M that really took great care of me. And I think they shaped me into the special ops world, uh, even though neither one of them pursued that. Uh, Chris Blockus and Kenny Crawford, uh, they, they were two years older, and they really took good care of me as a freshman and made sure I was going down the right path. They saw potential in me and believed in me. Uh, and then uh, – Man, I'm trying to think, you know, as, as, a, as a young team leader, uh, you know, I had, a, I had a lot of bosses just because of the way rotations. Uh, you know, I had one boss, Mike Dietrich. He was a battalion commander. Uh, and the great thing about Mike is he, he trusted us, trusted me to do my job. And then he did what he said he'd do. So he wouldn't, he was never that guy that would look up, call me up, you know, hey, we need you to do this. and need you to do that. It was, oh, that what you're doing? Okay, got it. And then, uh, you know, another, another boss uh, who I still stay in great contact with because we run into each other in the community all the time, uh, Les Fuller. Uh, he, when I was, uh, so when I was in Kosovo the second time, uh, I did, I was a company commander, but the job that I, the, the amount of organization that I had underneath me, I had my six ODAs. I had an ODA from another battalion in 10 special forces group. I had a SEAL platoon and I had the Ranger Regimental Recon platoon all under my command, my direct command, which nowadays is a, I was a major, nowadays is at least a one-star general. Uh, commanding oh, wow. all, all those assets. And my direct report boss was outside of the theater. I mean, I had my bosses there and uh, 
uh, Colonel Close was my boss there, and he trusted me. Man, he trusted me. Any, anything I said, he was like, all right, you got it. Otis, tell me if you need anything. Uh, and then I had the same thing on the, on the special operations, the Green Beret uh, General Les Fuller. Man, he, he covered me because, you know, my boss would call up and say, there shouldn't be a major run in this. His boss would call up and say, we need a colonel there. And General Fuller just said, no, stop. Otis got this. He doesn't need your help. He's handling it well. And Rand protected me from that. And that was just freaking awesome that he, uh, that he did that. And then I'll give you the last one in the military uh, because a lot of people know, know Admiral Bill McRaven. I was fortunate enough to, to work with him hand in hand on a project to establish the NATO Special Operations Headquarters. And Admiral McRaven and I, because we're both Texas boys, except he went to the other school, uh, the one in, one in Austin. Uh, so we would have a lot of fun. Uh, and he was, he was another one of those leaders, though, that trusted me 100%. And I used, I used my story. We were building the NATO Special Operations Command. I'm going to use my Afghanistan story with them, McRaven, for this. And we just held our first conference in Europe. So we brought in all these uh, partner nation, NATO nation, special ops commanders, and a handful of ministers of defense. So secretary of defense level, we're talking, you know, high level stuff. And we put them all on the U.S. four-star commanders jet, us, all of us on the jet, you know, it's whatever it is, 787, 757, you know, it's a, it's not a, it's a travel like a rock star. My one and only time in my life, I've traveled like a rock star. And we flew direct from Germany direct into Kabul and did a little tour around the place to show these commanders because we're, we're selling the mission. And towards the, the day before we're leaving, Alan McRaven pulls me off to the side and says, you're staying. And I was like, okay. <laughs> uh, I said that, sir. Uh, he says, I want you to, I want you to fix this. Don't fuck it up. And if you need something, call me. Next day, we're, we're back at the airport. All the other, you know, secretaries and generals load the plane, go up the stairs, you know, old school stairs going up. Right. Admiral and me standing at the base of the stairs. Says, you got this. Don't fuck it up. Call me if you need help. Salutes. I salute him back. Does a right face, goes up the stairs, you know, plane, none I am. <laughs> But he had 100% trust in me to get the job done. And I called him. I was there for another two, three weeks. Uh, called him twice. Said, Boss, I might need something. Because he and I knew, I understood what his intent was, and I knew what the end state was we wanted to achieve. I had clarity in that. And I also knew what his threshold mm. meaning. I wasn't going to wait until anything became a crisis to make a phone call. That's the worst thing you can do yeah. for your boss is wait. Crisis, I better call the boss. I mean, that's going to happen. But if you have indicators that something is going that way, you let them know early on. And that's what I did. I had to do it twice. We're going down the path. 
Uh, unfortunately, I pulled it back. <laughs> just to say that some of the things I was doing, some of the people that were there didn't want to do them, uh, didn't have the same vision that we had. So it took a little bit more massaging on my part, but, you know, a couple of reports back to the boss. Don't need you yet, sir, but I just got to give you a heads up in case I've got about 24 hours on this thing. And if it doesn't change, I'm going to, I'm going to need your help. That right there, that's the secret, man. That, that is, that is, that's money as opposed to, oh my God, it all fell apart. These guys aren't going to do it. Wow. Yeah. That's that problem solving on your own. Yeah. Awesome story and awesome lesson. So what parting advice do you have for the reader? Well, uh, the most important thing, and that's it's my, become my mantra, my phrase is to live life with intention and in pursuit of your purpose to achieve your success. And what people don't hear when they read that are the key elements. It's intention. I control it. It's what I want to do. It's my purpose. I know what my purpose is. I have clarity in the thing that fuels me. I know what it is and I know why it is and I know why I do it. And then finally, it's my success. I'm the only one that determines what's successful for me. Not anybody else. Not anybody. Nobody else can ever measure how successful I am other than myself. So that right there, if you strive to live your life with intention in pursuit of your purpose to achieve your success, you will be happy and fulfilled. That is succinct and powerful. So how can people find out more about you? The best way is, uh, well, I'm on LinkedIn. So follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, the other thing, Chris, I don't I always forget to do this, but I just thought of this. Uh, you know, I've got my, my weekly newsletter, Monday Moments newsletter. I would love to have people sign up for Monday Moments newsletter because it's, it's a stoic quote and it's something I learned that I share. So like today's newsletter is from something I learned last week. There's some other tidbits in there, but it's a stoic quote. And then something I learned last week, and those two are, are tied very tightly together, the quote and what I learned. Uh, so I, I love sharing with that. I'd love to have, have that as an action, you know, a call to action for people to. Yeah. We'll make sure that. of it. Yeah. So it's, it's tribe-purpose.com and it's the, you know, sign up for the Monday Moments newsletter. Perfect. Yeah, I'll make sure that's in there for sure. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I love that because uh, you know it's you know I write it every week, uh, so it's you know recent, but it's also me giving back. I'm a believer in the fact that if I'm not sharing what I know, I'm being a selfish son of a bitch. So <laughs> that is another way of me sharing what I've learned with others uh, is through the Monday Moments newsletter. I love it. Thanks. Thank you so much for that.
Thanks for listening to Pivot Perspectives with your host, Chris O'Byrne. Please leave your feedback and visit strategicadvisorboard.com to get the latest and greatest business advice on the planet. Follow us on social media for updates, and we will see you on the next episode. Thank you.